Well, good evening. In our series on future events, we have covered a number of important biblical, eschatological future events, beginning with the rapture of the church from 1 Thessalonians 4, the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, the rise and the fall of the Antichrist, also from Revelation 13, the tribulation from a variety of of scriptures, and now this evening, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It has been said that the first time Jesus came to earth, he did so to deal with a sin issue. Of course, he was born to die to shed his blood on a, a cross for the remission of our sins, something we just reflected on yet this evening. The second time that Jesus comes to earth, he will do so to deal with the sovereignty issue. The first time, the sin issue. The second time now, the sovereignty issue. And at that time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord. Jesus came first as the suffering servant. And then Jesus will come again as the conquering king to rule and reign over all. And the prophecy or the promise of Jesus' second coming is not a minor detail. It's not an obscure doctrine, quite the contrary. In fact, for every single verse of Scripture in the Bible um, that talks about the first coming of Jesus, his incarnation, there are eight verses in the Bible that refer to his second coming. And without confusing or conflating the rapture of the church before the tribulation with the second coming of Jesus after the tribulation, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to Jesus' return for his church and to reign on on the earth. And I would like to highlight three of those scriptures for us this evening and would ask you to follow me to each of these texts as I present a a study plainly titled The Second Coming, The Second Coming of, of Jesus Christ. So much of our Christian faith looks back to Jesus' first coming, and rightly so, as we just did this evening, but yet so much of our Christian faith ought to look forward to Jesus' second coming, again, as we just did. And... Um, And so let's do that tonight. We begin in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. If you go with me there to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter number 14, Zechariah 14, the place of Jesus coming, his second coming. Zechariah prophesied of both the first and the second comings of Jesus in chapter 14 now. It is the second coming that is in view. Jesus' second coming, Zechariah 14, verse number one, behold, The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city, that is Jerusalem, shall be taken. The houses rifled or plundered. The women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Near the end of the tribulation period, there will be a world war whose climax we know of as the Battle of Armageddon. And part of that larger military campaign will be this battle, the battle against Jerusalem described in Zechariah 14 verses one and two. It will be conducted in part as urban warfare from house to house in the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse number three. Then the Lord will go forth 
and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Jesus' coming, his second coming as the conquering king to war against the nations will happen when he returns. He plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, that hill to the east of the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And it is most appropriate for Jesus to return to the Mount of Olives because that is the place in the day of Ezekiel when the Shekinah glory left the temple area to the, to the east, went across the Kidron Valley, up the, the Mount of Olives, and then and, and vanished. Furthermore, the Mount of Olives is the place from which Jesus ascended into heaven. You'll remember in Acts chapter one, before his disciples, the angels said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus will return to that very same place on the Mount of Olives and enter Jerusalem from the east. Now, You may not know, but the most photographed view of the city of Jerusalem is from the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. And even if you've never been there, many of you have. Even if you've never been there, you have seen this perspective, this view of this picture. Here is a picture of a young Pastor Matt. Um, There standing on the Mount of Olives with the city of Jerusalem behind me, we are looking from east to west. That is the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Of course, our eyes only ever see the Muslim Dome of the Rock, the place where the temple once stood and will someday stand again. But what you haven't noticed in this picture or others like it is that the eastern gate, and and what I'll do is I'll highlight it right there, the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, also called the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate in Acts 3. It was sealed shut by order of Suleiman of the Ottoman Empire in 1540 for the Muslims wanted to prevent the return of Jesus from the Mount of Olives on the east side as the Bible promises. So even the Muslims, as they're reading the Bible, recognize the prophecy and the promise that Jesus' second coming, his return, will be from where I'm standing through that eastern gate. Furthermore, understanding the Bible's prophetic promise that Jesus would come again and enter Jerusalem from the east, and and let me zoom in here so you can get just a little bit of a closer picture there. You see the Dome of the Rock, and then to the right you see the, the eastern gate, Muslims then placed graves all along that eastern wall to deter the expected return of the Messiah. And here is that Muslim cemetery. It is a cemetery of Muslim graves, a Muslim cemetery to deter the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing 
But this is the prophecy of, of Zechariah, verse number 14. But before we move on, I want you to notice in the text, there's a mention of a remnant at the end of verse number two. You see it there? God has always preserved a remnant of his people through the course of history in spite of the numerous times when other nations tried to destroy the Hebrew people from, from the Pharaoh in Egypt to the Nazis in modern Germany to the Antichrist during the seven-year tribulation period yet to come. Yet there's always a remnant that God has preserved, and in this case, they declare their faith in him. Turn back to chapter 12, Zechariah 12. Let me just highlight verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced crucified. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Look to chapter 13, verse 1. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Chapter 13, verse number 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord, Yahweh, is my God. It's in Romans chapter nine that the apostle Paul wrote of this remnant who is alive when Jesus comes again. They've endured the tribulation period. They've now trusted in Christ. They'll be saved to live to enter into the, to the millennium. And so first, Zechariah 14, the place of Jesus coming. Number two, Turn with me to Matthew 24 in your New Testaments. Matthew 24. Not far away. Matthew 24, the process of Jesus' second coming. We read of Matthew 24 uh, some time ago when we were discussing the details of the, the tribulation. But let's pick up in chapter 24, verse 27. Matthew 24, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. What does that mean? It means this. Where there is corruption, judgment will follow. I think is what is being said here. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the, to the other. How do you think it can be that the whole world will see him, as we read there. After all, if, if Jesus is returning to the Mount of Olives, that specific place, and people live in the, the West, as we do, or the Far East, how will the whole world see it? Well, over the centuries, people have suggested that if Jesus descended slowly over the course of 24 hours, that maybe as the earth turned, everyone could look skyward and see the second coming of, of Jesus. But today, of course, because of modern technology, it's easy for us to imagine that this would be recorded and streamed over the internet, over television, so that everyone in the world could see. In some way, shape, or form, this will be a world event. 
for everyone to see. And when he comes again, nature will convulse. The sun will be darkened. Is that an eclipse? Is the sun flaming out? The moon will not reflect the sun's light, of course, because the sun is darkened. Stars are going to fall. The nations will mourn, we read. Why will the nations mourn? I think there's a couple ideas. I think when people realize that Jesus is coming as the conquering king, they will either mourn over their sin and and believe on Christ in genuine repentance, or they will mourn, grieve in agony and reject Christ. In verse 31, we read it there, the angels are gathering the elect ones, those who've been hiding in the terrible tribulation and those Jewish people who have come to trust in Christ and and uh, you see there that the angels are, are God's agents to, to do this. And I, I might just comment on that. It appears many times in the scripture that angels are God's agents in, in death. Back in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord would pass over the houses of those who had put the, the blood on the doorposts, you remember, the homes that did not obey by faith and put the blood on the doorposts, the destroyer or the death angel would come. In Luke 16, when Lazarus died, the Bible says that eight angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Here now in Matthew 24, God is dispatching angels to gather his elect, for we know they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, and and so the angels are part of that event. But now as spirit-baptized New Testament believers, as part of the bride of Christ, the church, who is raptured up Before the tribulation, Jesus returns and meets us in the air. It's not his second coming. That is the rapture of the church. What then is our part of this glorious appearing, Jesus' second coming where he plants his feet on the the Mount of Olives as conquering king? So we need to turn again to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and we're just connecting some dots here for us. Important scripture texts that speak of of Jesus coming in Revelation 19, the power of Jesus coming, his second coming. And this is perhaps the most familiar and perhaps the most favorite of Bible passages that speak to the second coming of, of Jesus. Revelation 19, let's pick up in verse number 11. Verse 11, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. It is no mystery to us that this rider on the white horse is none other than Jesus Christ, the rider on a white horse. Now, in his first coming, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey the very same path that you just saw in the photo I projected a moment ago from the Mount of Olives and there in through the eastern gates. And at the time Jesus rode on a a donkey, this second time Jesus is riding on a horse. A horse was an animal of warfare. Kings sat on horses while a donkey was an animal just of, of peace. And in his first coming, the Gospels report that Jesus had eyes of compassion But here, this time, Christ's eyes will be like a flame of fire. Verse number 12 there, if you're still looking at it, signifying judgments. When Jesus went to the cross, he wore a crown of thorns crushed on his head by wicked men. But here in verse 12, 
The Bible tells us that this time Jesus will be wearing the crowns of the wicked kings of the earth. In fact, in ancient times, when, it, when a military general conquered another nation, he would wear the crown of that king that he had just defeated, and he would, it, it would be a visual proclamation of his new control over that nation. In fact, historically, it's said that when Ptolemy of Egypt conquered Antioch, he wore two crowns, the crown of Egypt and the crown of Asia. But when Jesus Christ returns, he will wear all the crowns of all the earthly kings. What a visual statement that will be. But there's such a contrast to be noted between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In fact, one commentator has summed it up this way. I'll read it for you. I've not copied it for you in your notes. The first time Jesus came to earth, wicked men judged him. The second time he comes, however, he will judge wicked men. The first time he came, he stood before Pilate, Caiaphas, and Annas, and they all brought unrighteous verdicts against him. The second time that Jesus comes, he will return as everyone's king, and he will render nothing but righteous verdicts. At his first coming, Jesus healed the sick and ministered to the needy and cast out demons and brought peace to troubled hearts and released people of their burdens. But at his second coming, he will descend not with eyes filled with tears, but with eyes flashing in judgment. He will not wear a crown of thorns forced upon him in mockery, but will wear the diadems of all the rulers of the earth. Instead of being bloodied by his enemies, he will wear a robe dipped in their blood. And instead of being abandoned by his followers, all the armies of heaven will accompany him and return with him in triumph. Accompanying him will be the armies of, of heaven. I would give you letter B, the king and his, his armies. And I've even given you letter C, but uh, we'll get there just in a moment. I would point you to verse number 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a, a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, because the armies of, of heaven here are clothed, verse number 14 says, with, with fine linen, white and clean, uh, we believe it's a reference to the saints of the church, the church saints. However, I don't know that we only have to limit it to church saints, that's, that's us, for church saints aren't the only ones dressed in this manner. This could include angels as well. But in either case, most important or more important than the armies of heaven are the king, is, is, is Christ Jesus himself, who has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth to strike the nations, to rule with a rod of iron in verse number 15. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse number 9, where he treads the wine press, which pictures the trampling of grapes to produce juice. But in this case, the, the trampling isn't grapes, it's, it's not juice. It's, it's the wicked's blood that is forced there. And finally, Jesus wears that title, King of Kings and Lord of, of Lords. In fact, notice the titles there. L look at verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11. He's called Faithful and True. Verse 12, a name that no one knew except himself, not yet revealed to us. Verse 13, look at verse 13. What's the name? It's the Word of God. Verse 14, 
And then in verse 15, the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then finally now, let us see the war against the wicked. The war against the wicked, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them than the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. The, the, the supper of God is differ, different from the supper of the lamb back in, in verse number nine. It's the, the same word, but it's a very different event. In this case, the birds are invited to eat the flesh of everything that will be killed there in that place at that time. And if you do a little bit of homework on your own, you will learn that there are great migrations of birds that travel right through this very area. It's a very natural thing that the birds of, of all of the earth will be called to that place. Verse number 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Th- this is none other than the battle of Armageddon. And the, the word or the term, the place Armageddon, it's found back in chapter 16. In fact, turn the page back to Revelation 16 there. It's the name and the place of that great battle when the angel pours out the sixth bold judgment of the tribulation. You remember there are seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments. Revelation 16, look at verse number 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked. And they see his shame, and they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew. Here it is. Armageddon or Har-Megiddo. It means the hill of Megiddo. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, two important victories were won in this place. First, Barak's victory over the Canaanites in Judges 4 verse 15. And secondly, Gideon's victory over the Midianites in Genesis 7. This place was also the place of two tragedies in the Old Testament. First, the death of Saul and his sons in 1 Samuel 31 verse 8, and then also the death of King Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 29 through 30. And over the course of human history, there have been many armies that have fought battles in this place. The Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, and Crusaders fought at Megiddo, as well as the armies of Napoleon. Megiddo was the site of battles during World War I and the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. All of these places in this Jezreel Valley, Jezreel Valley the, near the hill of Megiddo, or Har Megiddo, Harmageddon, is the place where this final conflict will take place. Verse 19. Look at, I'm sorry, back to chapter 19, verse number 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is the conquering king, Jesus Christ. Verse 20. 
Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image through the, the, the course of the tribulation. These two were cast alive. They were captured alive. They were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Folks, what do we do with the reading of these things? As we try to connect the dots of Old Testament prophecy and the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and in, in Revelation 21 and the imagery is, is so picturesque and, it, and it's maybe cryptic and we're not entirely certain of, of, of every detail But there are two takeaways that I would submit to you the reading of this. One is, those who refuse to repent will fall into the hands of the living God. And as the Bible says in Hebrews 10 verse 31, that is a fearful thing. Fear God. Jesus is coming again, not just to rapture his church. He's coming again to destroy the wicked and defeat the nations. Second, knowing these things, I don't know that there is any other response than to worship the lordship of Jesus Christ and to crown him as king. We submit to his sovereignty. You see, in his first coming, in his incarnation, Jesus came to deal with the sin issue But he is coming again to deal with the sovereignty issue. And in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was just this past month that Queen Elizabeth II of England died at age 96 after reigning for 70 years over the United Kingdom there in Great Britain Prior to her coronation in 1952, Queen Elizabeth II sent out invitations to her relatives and to her friends and to chosen British citizens. Let me read for you the invitation that she sent in 1952, and you tell me what you think. I've I've got it for you here on the screen. She says, we greet you well. Whereas we have appointed the second day of June 1953 for the the solemnity of our coronation, these are therefore to will and to command all excuses set apart, that you make your personal attendance upon us at the time above mentioned, there to do and to perform such services as will be required of you. Let me read it one more time. We greet you well, whereas we have appointed the second day of June 1953 for the solemnity of our coronation. These are therefore to will and to command all excuses set apart, that you make your personal attendance upon us at at the time above mentioned, there to do and to perform such services as will be required of you. You see, a queen doesn't request a subject's attendance. Rather, she requires their attendance. A king who is coming again to rule and reign doesn't suggest our 
attendance. He demands our submission because he is ruling and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19, verse number 16. What does he require of us? He requires that we bend the knee, that we bow the heart and the head and give him our submission to his lordship. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you for the written revelation, the the prophecy and the promise of Jesus coming again as conquering king. Lord, we're so grateful that he came as suffering servant to purchase our salvation, to redeem us from our sin. But Lord, we look forward to the day when he will rule and reign in perfect righteousness and all that's wrong in this world will be made right. Lord, in the meantime, may we be those who bend the knee, who bow the head and the heart and declare his lordship. I pray that you would help us in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.